No one can come to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit uses God's word to draw them to Jesus. Jesus gives eternal life to anyone who believes that he is God and that he died as a sacrifice for human sin. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, we're going to try and finish this chapter today. We're starting at verse 41. For those of you that have been with us, we've been in the gospel of John for a couple of months and we'll be here probably for the better part of a year uh, if we can keep going, uh, Lord willing. Uh, I'm going to show you a map of the scope of Jesus' ministry at this point in time. It's Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and then on the east side of the Jordan, you'll see on the map Decapolis, which means 10, 10 cities, and Perea, the southeast. So Jesus spent the first year of his ministry uh, mostly in Judea. Obviously, he was raised in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. You'll go from the south, you'll see Judea, the region, then Samaria, and then Galilee. Uh, that's where he spent the uh, where he was born in Nazareth. He came down for about a year in Judea, thereabouts. And when the Jewish religious leaders tried to kill him, he moved up to Galilee, uh, by the Sea of Galilee, and spent a year ministering that region. Capernaum, on the northeast, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, was his uh, home base. Now, Galilee, at that point in time, consisted of about 200 villages, or towns. Now, some of these villages or towns were as small as maybe 10 to 30 people, very, very small, white spot in the road kind of things. Some had between 100 and 400, and maybe your bigger uh, towns maybe had 5,000, and maybe your largest, maybe 20,000 people. So all told, Galilee, that region north of Samaria, probably had a population of about 400 to 450,000 people at this point. Just so you know, Bakersfield had a population of about 407,000 in 2021. So this region, roughly the size of Bakersfield in terms of population. And Jesus spent about 16 months all totaled in his ministry in Galilee. And chapter 6, where we are today, begins with Jesus doing miracles that attract huge crowds. And 71 verses later, at the end of this chapter, most of those crowds have deserted him. With the exception of the 11, 12. Judas is still with us. The remnant remained faithful. Now, at the first part of this chapter we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus has just miraculously fed a crowd of 20,000 people on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. The next day, he's in Capernaum on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, where he uses his ministry headquarters. And he's having a discourse, a sermon with this crowd about who he is, where he came from, what his mission is. And he just told them, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven. And he's in the temple in Capernaum, the synagogue rather, and he says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And we're going to pick up the narrative here at verse 41. It says, in response to that statement, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, quote, I am the bread of life that came down out of heaven, end quote. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose mother and father we know, how does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Here's the principle. Don't try to shrink wrap Jesus into your own preconceived ideas about who he is. Don't try to shrink wrap Jesus into your own preconceived ideas about who he is. You're not going to be able to shrink wrap him anyway. I'm saying don't even bother trying, okay? The Jews are obviously trying to do that. Now, when John uses the phrase, the Jews, remember, he's mostly talking about the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc., that were hostile to Christ. As a matter of fact, they're trying to kill him. That's why he's in Galilee, why he left Jerusalem and Judea. Now, they knew very clearly that his claim to come down out of heaven is a claim to deity. It's a claim to be God himself. 
And sadly, as we're going to see in this chapter, the Galilean crowds, just like the Judean Jerusalem crowds, follow their leaders and they wind up rejecting Christ. Uh, the Jewish people had a long history of grumbling or murmuring, first against Moses and, and now against Christ. By the way, the, grumbling or murmuring against God is not endemic to the Jews. It's endemic to the human race. I don't care who you are, we all are whiners. We do. Murmur, 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 murmur. That's what it sounds like. It's grumbling, right? Complaining. It means to mutter beneath your breath to complain behind someone's back. And we all as sinners do that to the Lord on a regular basis. So this Galilean crowd has some pretty strong preconceived ideas about who Jesus is and where he came from. Now think about it. He grew up in Nazareth, just to the south and west of here, and the people at this synagogue knew him. They knew his family. They knew he was raised in Joseph and Mary's home. They knew he had at least four brothers and two sisters, so at least family of, of seven children. And they knew Jesus from the time he was a baby. He's about 32 now. He's about a year from the cross. They knew that Mary was his biological mother. What they didn't know was that Joseph was not his biological father. Joseph was his legal father. He had come out of heaven to be born of a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. God was his father, and heaven was his real home. And the Jewish nation knew that the Old Testament had prophesied that the Messiah was to be born of the line of David in the city of David, Bethlehem, right? House of bread. What's utterly fascinating to me is that none of Jesus' enemies, none of them, ever investigated to see where he was born. All of them said, have you not read the Old Testament scriptures? No prophet arises out of Galilee. They all assumed because he was raised in Nazareth in Galilee, he was born in Nazareth. Not true. He was born in Bethlehem. Had they discovered he was born in Bethlehem, I wonder what would have happened. So they couldn't reconcile their knowledge about Jesus and his family, we knew you when you were in diapers with the fact that this kid that they knew when he was in diapers is now doing miracles. Hundreds of them. You know, healing people, casting out demons, feeding 5,000, and they can't get to his claim that he came out of heaven. They reject him, and they refuse to believe either his words or his works. Verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble, stop among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has learned and heard from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Here's the principle. No one can come to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit uses God's word to draw them to Jesus. No one can come to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit uses God's word to draw them to Jesus. Now, these grumblers, these skeptics, wanted Jesus to conform to their idea about what Messiah would be. And they wanted a Messiah to be a political leader, a military leader, who would feed them, number one, at the welfare state, and free them from Roman domination and make them the premier nation in that region. Have you noticed that skeptics are usually pretty impressed with their own intelligence? Uh, they're pretty arrogant. Many skeptics think that they can come to God anytime and on their terms and God will be thrilled to have them on his team because they're so special, right? Now, Jesus pulls the rug out on that idea right away. And what does he say? No one can come to the Father unless, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, this crowd and many of your friends and my friends are convinced that they already have eternal life in the bag. I've got to take care of You know, I'm a good person. And the Jews thought, well, we're God's special people, which they were. We're Abraham's seed. They were. And they said, we keep the law. 
Uh, not so much, right? They kept the man-made rules, but Jesus was continually confronting them to say, what does the law say? What are you doing? There is a rather large gap between what the law says, God's law says, and how we behave. And this crowd resented Christ, and they rejected his statement that they were helpless sinners who needed a Savior. See, they weren't interested in a Savior who could save them from sin. They were interested in Jesus the servant, who would provide them, you know, free food, free health care. Kind of like today, right? Jesus took a sharp knife to their self-righteous pride, and he basically says, no one has the ability to come to God unless my Father draws them. You can't come to God whenever you choose. And that should sober us up, because I've talked to people, I talked to a guy one time, and he says, look, I'm going to make my peace with God on the way up. And, you know, my assumption is, how long do you think it's going to take to go up? Right? The issue is, when God calls, that's when you should respond, because if you delay it, if God doesn't call, you ain't going to come. At 75, 65, 95, whatever it happens to be. Today is the day of salvation. See, salvation is God's plan, and it is always done on his terms, not our terms. The Bible tells us that sinful man is blinded, literally blinded to the truth of God, and is unable to believe without help from the, God's, from the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, In whose case, he's talking about unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So unless God opens the eyes of our lost family and friends and colleagues and people we work with, etc., they cannot come to Jesus. That's why we pray. For what? That God would open the eyes of their heart. That God would open their minds. That God would speak to their hearts and open their will that they would be able to see and respond. You know, John 3.16 is a fascinating verse. It's a life-changing verse. It says, whoever believes in him, right, shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life. So the question is, we know that if you believe, you have eternal life. The question is, who has the ability to believe? And of course you say, well, everybody does. Really? Jesus quotes Isaiah 6.13, right here. And he says, they shall all be taught of God. This means that everyone who believes in Christ only believes because they have been taught and drawn to God, to Jesus, using the Scriptures. The truth is about Jesus is found in the Bible. And no one has the capacity to understand the truth about Jesus unless God the Holy Spirit teaches them. How many, people, how many of you know people who read the Bible and go, say, man, I get nothing out of this. This means nothing to me. Well, yes, you do not have the Spirit of God turning the floodlights on, the Scriptures, so that the eyes of your heart, your understanding, your spiritual comprehension are open. As a matter of fact, teaching people about Jesus is one of the Holy Spirit's primary functions. John 16, 13, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's telling me he's going into heaven. He says, it's beneficial that I go away. Why? But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into the truth. But before he does that, he convicts us of sin. John 16, 8. And when he, he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, and righteousness, and judgment. So it's the Holy Spirit that convicts people that they're sinners who need a Savior. You and I came to faith because the Holy Spirit brought conviction in our hearts that we needed a Savior. And that's what's required for anyone to come to Christ. 
No one will come to God through human reason, through human logic, through mysticism, through religious rituals, through burning candles, through philosophy, through altered states of consciousness, through drug use. There's no way to come to God other than through Jesus the Son. Jesus said, at the end of this phrase, he says, look, I have the ultimate authority to speak about God since I'm the only one that has ever seen him face to face. You know, if you've seen God face to face and you have an intimate oneness, same essential nature as God, you are God, you have the authority to speak for the Father because you're the Son, right? Verse 47. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Here's our principle. Jesus gives eternal life to anyone who believes that he is God and that he died as a sacrifice for human sin. Jesus gives eternal life to anyone who believes that he is God and that he died as the sacrifice for human sin. So Jesus is now comparing earthly bread with heavenly bread. And he uses manna as the example of earthly bread who was sent by God out of heaven, to be eaten by the Jews in the wilderness. Now, physical bread sustains physical life, temporarily. Heavenly bread sustains spiritual life forever. That's eternal life, right? So the one who eats the living bread that comes out of heaven will never die. Now, here's what I want you to grab. When Jesus used the word eating, he's talking about believing. Eating the bread means believing in Jesus Christ. Eating means believing. That's the metaphor. So the result of eating the living bread, the result of believing in Christ as Savior is eternal life. That's the outcome. In the same way, eating physical bread gives you physical life. Eating eternal bread, believing in Christ, gives you eternal life. Eternal life is the very life of God living inside the believer at the moment of salvation. Now, let's take a look at something pretty basic. When you all leave here today, you're probably going to go eat lunch, yeah? Some of you, most of you. I want you to think about eating, eating bread particularly. If you want the nutritional benefit of bread, you have to eat it. This is not difficult, right? You can bake bread, you can smell bread, you can philosophize about bread, you can fondle the bread, but if you don't eat it, you don't get any nutrition. You have to eat it. The same is true of Jesus, the living bread. You can admire Jesus, you can study his life, you can be amazed at his miracles, you can call him a wonderful moral teacher, but if you don't eat him, if you don't take him inside your life by faith, you have no spiritual life. Make sense? So, number two, when do we eat? Generally, we eat when we're hungry. If I'm already stuffed with food, like after Thanksgiving, the second dessert, right? Near coma status. <laughs> I'm not going to eat more at that moment, no matter how good it smells. It's the same spiritually. When the sinner loves their sin and is stuffed with the flesh and the world and the devil and all the lies of Satan, they are not hungry for the bread of life. When they're stuffed with sin, the bread of life is repulsive to them. And some people you share your faith with, they are so satisfied with their sin that there's no room in their heart for the living bread, the Lord Jesus. However, when the Holy Spirit convicts them of sin, they learn to hate their sin. They're aware of their lostness. They're aware of their purposelessness. They're aware of their brokenness. Then they become famished for what? The bread of life. And they can't wait to eat. Many times, the only time we're aware of our need for the Savior is when? 
when we're in a crisis. Sometimes God expresses his love toward us and toward the people he wants to save by arranging a crisis in their life so that they will be aware that they need him. Number three, contrary to popular opinion, the most intimate thing you can do is eat. What you put in you becomes part of you. The more you put into you, the more of you there is. Yes, right? This is profound truth, right? Spiritually speaking, Christ needs to be appropriated, right? He needs to become a part of us in the same way that food does. When Christ enters your life, he comes in in the form through the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that our bodies are what? The temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place, the home of the Holy Spirit. Christ lives in us through his Spirit. Here's the question. Is every room in your home open to Jesus, or do you have the back closet padlock? You can see in everything, but not in there, because that I don't want you to see. Last thing, eating is personal. You cannot delegate eating by proxy to somebody else. You know, it's 12 noon and you're hungry, you call your spouse up and say, can you have a sandwich for me because I don't have time right now. <laughs> if you're hungry, only you can do something about it. Jesus says, eat and live forever. That's a personal decision. No one can do it for you. When people refuse to take Jesus into their very being, it's because they're already filled and satisfied with the food that perishes, with the sin they're currently practicing in their lives. And God's solution for human sin is sacrifice. Jesus said what? I am the living bread. The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's equating bread with flesh. And he says, I am going to give my own flesh, my own life, as the once-for-all sacrifice for human sins. How did the Jewish crowd respond? Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with each other, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Here's the principle. Feeding on Jesus by faith yields supreme satisfaction and eternal life. Feeding on Jesus by faith yields supreme satisfaction and eternal life. It now, is symbolic. It is not literal. You need to understand that. There's been an enormous amount of... of um, uh, religious decision-making, taking this literally. Jesus is using bread as a picture of his flesh. And this crowd is thinking literally. And they're saying, they're arguing with each other. What does Jesus mean when he says, eat my flesh, literally? Because the Old Testament rejects cannibalism, obviously. It rejects drinking blood. The Jews would consider that to be um, uh, uh, just an awful thing because God had told Moses, the life of the flesh is in the blood. You are never to drink blood. You are to pour out the blood on the ground as an offering because, or on the altar because the life was in the blood. So even if they accepted that, Jesus is one human body. That body is not big enough to go around for the world, right? For everybody to have a little bite. So they're literalizing this to the point of uh, insanity. So Jesus now, he, he doesn't back away from this. He moves into this and creates even more conflict in their life. He now uses another metaphor. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He moves from bread now 
to flesh and blood. Understand, flesh and blood here are metaphors for life. You have flesh and blood. If you don't have flesh and blood, you don't have physical life. So flesh and blood, he's talking about life itself, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Eating and drinking are metaphors for believing, accepting, trusting, and appropriating. Eating and drinking means you take something outside yourself and bring it inside yourself and it becomes a part of you. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you take him inside you by faith and he becomes part of you through the Holy Spirit. When he says, eat my flesh, he says, come to me, believe that I am God, believe that I came to earth in human form. When he says, drink my blood, he says, believe that I'm going to die a substitutionary death on the cross for the sins of the world. I mean, this is the heart of salvation, right? To believe that Jesus is God, come in the flesh, God himself, and that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He's a substitute sacrifice for every sinner. So eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood means to take inside you to personally accept and believe by faith that Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty for your sins, which results in eternal life. This is not the Catholic Mass. This is not transubstantiation where they actually believe that the symbolic wine and bread turns into the body and blood of Christ. The Lord's Supper hasn't even been instituted yet. We're not there. This is not talking about the Lord's Supper. This is called exercising faith and bringing Christ into your life, responding to his call for salvation by faith and taking him into your life. What is John 12, 24 saying? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, to make bread, you first have to plant the wheat seed. Would you agree? Pretty obvious, right? When you plant the wheat seed in the ground, it dies. It rots. And then it brings forth a plant that has multiple wheat seeds. And when the plant grows, the seeds have to be gathered. When the seeds are gathered, they have to be what? Crushed into flour. And then the flour is baked into bread. When you eat the bread, you get life. That's a picture of Jesus Christ who dies on the cross in order to be the bread that gives eternal life to those who eat him, to those who believe in him. Jesus died as a substitute the innocent for the guilty, so that those who believe in him will have eternal life. Ephesians 5.2 said, Christ loved us. How do we know that? He has given himself for us. He's talking about his death for us as an offering and sacrifice to God. Now, when you believe that Christ is God in the flesh and that he died for your sins, you get four benefits. Four benefits. Look at verse 53. The first benefit you get is life. In, in, in verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have what? No life in yourself. So conversely, if you do believe that I am God incarnate, if you do accept that I died for your sins, you will have life. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. So the first benefit of believing by faith that Jesus is God and that he died for your sins is spiritual life. God's life in you, here and now on planet Earth. How do we know that? Well, some of the fruits of that life are what? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence that you have eternal life. Number two, the second benefit is not just life here and now, spiritual life, it's eternal life, life forever. Verse 54, the one who believes in Jesus has eternal life. Now, eternal life begins at the moment of salvation. You right now have eternal life even though you are living in this body on a broken, fallen, sinful planet because Christ lives in you through the Holy Spirit. Here and now on planet Earth and forever, right? Eternal life lasts forever in heaven. So you have eternal life here on earth, and you will continue to have eternal life in heaven. 
Now, I can assure you that heaven is an upgrade from this place. B, have, you have something to look forward to, seriously to look forward to, right? Third benefit, resurrection, verse 54. Jesus said, you not only have eternal life, but I'm going to raise you up on the last day, which he says about five times in this passage, four to five times. I'll raise him up on the last day. He's talking about physical, bodily resurrection. And 1 Corinthians is the great resurrection chapter, and it says that we're going to get a new resurrection body. From the looks of this crowd, we desperately need a new (laughs) resurrection body. When I looked in the mirror this morning, I said, man, I need that now, today, right? One hour short of time did not help what I saw in the mirror. I thought, it's getting worse and worse. Our current body is headed for the junkyard. I mean graveyard, right? Same thing. But we're going to get an eternal version, 2.0, right? And it's designed to live forever in heaven. And the fourth benefit is intimate fellowship with Jesus. What does verse 56 say? Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, right? This is union with Christ. This is, in John 15, we're going to get to, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide, if you remain, if you remain connected to the vine, like a vine is attached intimately to the vine, as a branch is attached to the vine, it produces fruit. That's the intimate connection. Think of a branch in the trunk of a tree. Another metaphor, Christian marriage is a physical human picture of our intimate spiritual relationship with Jesus. John 14, 20, before he went to the cross, Jesus told his disciples, and on that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Sounds pretty connected, right? That's what is designed to be, our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, intimate union and oneness. So you say, well, okay, so what? What's the application? Well, feed your soul every day on Christ. You eat three times a day, I think, at least twice, right? Feed your soul the same way you feed your body. What is uh, Psalm 37 verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of right. You know what that word delight means? Indulge. What's your favorite food? Whatever it is. Does it bring you pleasure to eat? Yes, that's why it's my favorite food. Indulge in Christ the same way you indulge in your favorite food. Your soul will be supremely satisfied, and you will never overeat. You never get a bellyache when you overeat on Jesus, right? It will always satisfy your soul. You cannot have too much of Jesus. Verse 60. What's the crowd's reaction? Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult saying. Who can listen to it? Now, remember, he's in the synagogue. He's in Capernaum, his ministry headquarters. More than one-third of his miracles were performed in the region of Galilee. And by the way, disciple means learner or follower. Disciple does not mean believer. Not all disciples were believers. Not everyone who followed Jesus was a believer. They were just a follower. Many of them followed Jesus because they liked the free food, right? Not for who he was. In in essence, Jesus told them, if you don't believe that I am God come in the flesh, if you don't believe that I came to earth to die for your sins, then you cannot have eternal life with God. And they said, this is a difficult statement. It means this is an objectionable statement. This is an offensive statement. I am outraged. My feelings are hurt. Whatever, right? You know, we're very aware of victimhood today. I mean, these people were really outraged over this statement. Now, many of these disciples just wanted free food. Some were convinced that Jesus was a prophet, but he was only a good man, right? And some of them would not accept the fact that he was greater than Moses. Now, the Jewish idea of the Messiah at that point was a military, political leader going to wage war on their behalf, free him from Rome, and feed him forever and make Israel a premier nation on earth. 
they wanted nothing to do with a suffering Messiah. They didn't believe that Messiah was there to suffer. They believed that Messiah was there with a sword and kill their enemies. And they were outraged that Jesus told them they needed saving because they believed that God accepted them just like they were because after all, they were good enough just like they were. You know people like this, right? And so Jesus didn't fit their preconceived ideas and they rejected him. Here's a small truth. Just because you don't understand something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because you don't understand something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I am amazed at the number of people that are so impressed with their opinions. <laughs> when what falls out of their mouth bears no resemblance to reality. Right? God is even less impressed. Right? So when we say, God, I'm good enough for your perfect standards in heaven... By what standard? Well, I decided I am. That's not going to cut much ice in heaven. It's not going to cut any ice in heaven. Jesus is the only way, and this crowd rejected that. Verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. I want you to notice the progression. They've gone from murmuring to grumbling to mocking, and now they're tripping and stumbling and falling over his words. They loved his works, free food, healing, spectacular demon exorcisms, come one, come all, right? They loved his works. They hated his words. And the same thing is true today. There's lots of people that go, Jesus was a good man. He was a good prophet. He, you know, he, he did so many good things, healed the sick and fed them, etc. But when he says, there's no way to the Father but through me, and you're a sinner, and you're going to hell if you don't accept me as your Savior and Lord, they hate that, right? Nothing has changed. Jesus said, you're stumbling over the fact that I am God who came down from heaven. Would you believe in me if you saw me ascend back to heaven? Because that's exactly what's going to happen in less than a year. Now, most of this crowd defected before the ascension. But the 11 disciples, they saw the ascension. They saw him go back into heaven. The truth of it is, humans have no ability to comprehend, let alone respond to the gospel, unless the Holy Spirit opens their minds to understand it. This crowd did not like being told they were helpless to come to God on their terms. Spiritual birth, as Jesus told Nicodemus, being born again, the technical term is regeneration, new life, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no spiritual life apart from divine intervention. And that's why we cannot pray enough for the lost, because if the Holy Spirit doesn't work in their hearts and open the eyes of their heart, as Andrew was saying this morning, they're not going to comprehend your physical words. Verse 64. Jesus said, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Here's the principle. False disciples trust in themselves and reject God's Son and God's Word when it doesn't agree with them. False disciples trust in themselves and reject God's Son and God's Word when it doesn't agree with them. Now, when he says, you do not believe, we're talking about willful unbelief. We're not talking about lack of understanding. They have understanding. They know exactly what he's saying. It's a refusal to believe despite understanding the evidence. And this word, not walking, withdrew, it imparts a final, irrevocable rejection of Jesus Christ. Unbelief is choosing to walk away from Christ into hell. At separation from God for all eternity. Now, Jesus is omniscient. 
and he knows from the beginning who were his sheep and who were the goats. And it begs the question, in light of all the evidence, how could they not believe? Well, we're going to find out in chapter 10, he says, you can't believe because you're not my sheep. You belong to your father, the devil, and you follow him. You can't hear my words because you're under his ownership. You don't belong to my fold. This crowd, or what we would call false disciples, you think they're disciples. By the way, the church is full of false disciples, right? Let me give you a few characteristics. John MacArthur preached a couple sermons on this, interestingly enough. A false disciple is attracted by the supernatural. They love the spectacular. Signs and wonders, miracles, healings. Boy, false disciples are attracted by supernatural power. But they want to use it for their own selfish ends. You know, I want some of that power so I can get the praise and the adoration of the crowd. A false disciple doesn't worship God. They demand that God do for them what they want. Health, wealth, power, pleasure, fame, fortune. God, your job is my genie. Muhammad Ali once said, God is my co-pilot. Wow. He's also the one, at the height of his fame, sat down in the seat, said to the stewardess, Superman don't need no seat belts. The stewardess said, Superman don't need no airplane. Put your seat belt on. <laughs> Pretty easy to get over impressed when you look in the mirror, right? A false disciple hates the truth. They refuse to submit to God. They love this world and they do not desire salvation. Probably the best way to understand this crowd is to look at Jesus. He told the parable of the sower, the seed, and four soils. The soil represents the state of your heart. The state of the heart that listens to the seed, which is the gospel. So you have rocky soil, you have weedy soil, you have hard soil, and you have good soil. This crowd's heart is like rocky soil. Now, back in Palestine, Israel, um, I would think you could very easily say it's a rocky place. There are lots of rocks in Israel. And rocky soil had a thin layer of topsoil, and underneath there was hard pan limestone. Limestone rock. So you had a very thin inch, inch and a half soil base under some of these seed surfaces. And when the, you, 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 you sowed the seed and the rains came, the seed would sprout quickly. But they would die when the hot sun scorched them because their roots were shallow. And this bedrock limestone prevented the soil, the seed root, from going down to where the moisture was. And this crowd's like that. They accepted who Jesus was as long as he healed their sick, fed their hunger, cast out their demons, right? They, they, they had a shallow commitment uh, to the spectacular. However, when he spoke about his upcoming suffering and death and faith as a requirement for them to have eternal life, their faith died really quickly. In the course of one sermon, they went from following to rejecting. One sermon. He emptied the synagogue of followers, right? And Jesus didn't tell them what their pride wanted. He went from grumbling to stumbling to defecting, and they followed Satan instead of following God. And this is heartbreak. I think about it from Christ's standpoint. He's been ministering now for about two years. He's poured his life into people. He's done hundreds of miracles. They have all seen this and they still reject him. In verse 67, you can almost hear the pathos. Jesus says to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered, did I myself not choose you the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Here's the principle. True disciples exercise enduring faith in God's word and God's son. 
True disciples exercise enduring faith in God's Word and God's Son. You can hear the pain in Christ's voice as he asks the question. Simon Peter demonstrates that he's a true disciple, not a defector. He clearly doesn't have all the answers. You and I don't either. But he does know one thing. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Right? They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and only through Christ can eternal life be obtained. There is no other way, no other person, no other solution except Jesus Christ. They have that figured out, and that is absolutely accurate. It's interesting. There are multiple lists of the disciples in the Gospels. And in every case, Peter is always the first one mentioned, and who's the last one? Always Judas. And he's always identified as the betrayer. And yet, he was chosen as one of the twelve by Christ after praying all night long. Which means that Jesus knew from the beginning that this was going to be the betrayer. And he was going to be instrumental in arranging for his death. And of course, this was in order to fill God's plan to provide for the salvation of everyone who would believe in his son. And Jesus said, one of you is a devil. Now we know that Judas was influenced by Satan, but even more, we know ultimately he was indwelt by Satan. When you read right after the Lord's Supper, uh, it says that Satan did not delegate the possession of Judas to a mere demon. He indwelled Judas himself. He was going to ensure that Jesus was murdered. Judas clearly, like the crowd, wanted a political messiah, wanted a military messiah who had set up an earthly kingdom. And by the way, all 12 disciples wanted this. They wanted Christ to have an earthly kingdom because they wanted to be large and in charge in his earthly kingdom. I mean, they were going to sit on 12 thrones. They were going to rule with Jesus Christ. God, give me positions of power and authority. We know that Judas was a thief. He stole from the money box. And when Jesus made it very, very clear, I'm going to the cross, that didn't fit with Judas's idea of power and wealth and authority. And he said, I'm out of here. A dead Messiah was not going to advance his own personal agenda. However, it says, once Jesus was arrested... His guilty conscience convicted him that he'd betrayed innocent blood, and the only solution was to hang himself. Here's the part that is almost incomprehensible. He was face to face with God for three and a half years. Almost every day. Saw him do miracles. Heard his words. Saw his love. Experienced his compassion. Watched him fulfill prophecy. And yet, like Adam and Eve, he believed Satan's lie that God was not a good God, that his own personal agenda for wealth and power and status was more important, turned his back on Christ and chose to do what he knew was wicked and evil with full knowledge. Every pastor has to live with defectors. That's reality. False disciples. And you know people. You probably know people. They could be family and friends who at one point in time were following the Lord and who, because, oh, I got my feelings hurt, the church misbehaved, uh, you know, did some bad things, I'm struggling, God doesn't answer my prayers the way I want it to. I mean, the list goes on and on. People always have reasons why they walk away. There's nothing quite so painful as someone who walks away with full knowledge because the reality is there is no life apart from Christ. The lie that you can go out there in the world and get your soul satisfied is a lie. I don't care what you try, you're going to wind up with a famished, thirsty soul. Only Christ can fill your soul. And that's why he says, Come to me, eat and drink. Make me a part of your life. Bring me into your life, into your very life, and you will have intimacy and fellowship with me, and I will satisfy your soul both here on earth and forever and ever in heaven. Follow him. Okay, let's summarize now, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, don't try to shrink wrap Jesus into your own preconceived ideas about who he is. Jesus Christ is far greater 
than you and I even comprehend. And you can be reading the Gospels for 50, 60 years, and what you know about him is true, but you have very limited comprehension about who he is. That's why you keep reading, keep studying, and keep asking the Holy Spirit, as Andrew said this morning, open the eyes of my heart as I read your word. Number two, no one can come to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit uses God's word to draw them to Jesus. That's why it's imperative that we pray, pray, pray that the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our loved ones who do not know him yet. Number three, Jesus provides eternal life to all believe that he is God and that he dies and sacrifice for human sin. Two sets of beliefs. Number one, you believe that he is God come in the flesh. And number two, that he died as a substitute sacrifice for human sin. Number four, feeding on Jesus by faith yields supreme satisfaction in eternal life. Let me tell you, Jesus is a seven-course banquet and most Christians are eating mud pies in an alley with a garden hose. They believe the lie that you can satisfy your soul on all kinds of stuff except the bread of life. Number five, false disciples trust in themselves and reject God's Son and God's Word in a way that disagrees with them. And you and I are subject to that. We read something in Scripture and we don't comprehend it. So what's the first thing we do? Must not be true, I don't understand it. Maybe you need to say, Lord, open my eyes and show me what you're saying there. I have a three-pound brain and it's getting demented, so I need some spiritual help. Can you open this thick mind and teach me what you want me to learn? Show me what you want me to learn in your word. A false disciple, because they don't understand, they reject. A true disciple exercises enduring faith in God's word. They say, Lord, I know that you speak truth. And I'm asking you to open my mind and show me what it is you want me to learn. Okay, thank you for your attention. I do pray for the eyes of your heart to be opened now that we've gone over this. Ask you to read ahead, Lord willing, next week, chapter 7. You know I love you. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.